Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 1. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. Burkett notes, St. Mark, the writer of this compendious history of our blessed Savior's life and death, was the disciple and companion of St. Peter, and some affirm that he wrote the gospel from St. Peter's mouth, its being dedicated by St. Peter and indebted by the Holy Spirit. But since we are assured that the Spirit of God indebted the book, we need not trouble ourselves to find out whose hand it was that held the pen. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Burkett notes, The word gospel signifies a message of glad tidings and intimates to us that the gospel of the doctrine contains the most gladsome tidings, the most joyful message that ever was sent from God to mankind. Happy tidings concerning our reconciliation with God and salvation by Jesus Christ. Oh, how highly we should prize, how steadfastly believe, how cordially embrace these good tidings of great joy. Observe, too, this gospel is called the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Christ, as God, is the author of this gospel, and also the principal subject and matter of it. Indeed, St. John the Baptist was the first publisher and preacher of the gospel doctrine, but Christ himself was the first and principal author, and likewise the chief subject matter of it. For whatever is taught in the gospel relates either to the person and offices of Christ, or to the benefits received by him, or the means of enjoying those benefits from him. Observe 3 how St. Mark styles Christ the Son of God, as St. Matthew had styled him before the Son of David. The one sets forth the verity of his human nature, the other the reality of his divine nature, signifying to us that the true and promised Messiah was both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He is true and real God, as well as the Father and the Holy Ghost, not a mere man, but God as well as man. Verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Burkett notes, St. Mark begins his gospel with an account of St. John the Baptist's preaching and ministry, and declares, 1. That the prophets of old, particularly Isaiah and Malachi, did long before foretell the Baptist's message and ministry, that he should go before Christ as his harbinger to prepare the way for him. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare thy way. Where note one, the dignity and authority of those ministers of Christ. They are his messengers sent by him to deliver his mind and will unto his people. The ministerial mission is twofold, extraordinary and ordinary. The former, when God immediately by himself calls men to the holy function. The latter, when he uses the ministry of men in order thereunto. Observe two, the work and office of the ministers of Christ declared, and that is, to prepare people to receive Jesus Christ, offered and tendered to them in the gospel. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare thy way before thee. Learn thence that the great design and end of the ministry of the word is to prepare and fit men for entertaining the holy religion of Christ in their hearts, and to oblige them to walk according to the rules and directions of it in their lives. Verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Burkett notes, Here note, 1. The title given to John the Baptist. He is called a voice. 
in respect to his ministerial offices, which was to speak forth, to promulgate and publish, the doctrine of salvation. Two, the quantity or kind of this voice, a crying voice, the voice of one crying. This implies, one, his earnestness and vehemency, his zeal and fervency in preaching. When we lift up our voice and cry aloud, we speak with earnestness and fervor. When our own hearts are warmly affected with what we preach, we may hope to affect the hearts of our hearers. Why has God commissioned men rather than angels to be the preachers and dispensers of his word, but because we can speak to and treat with sinners more feelingly and more affectionately than the angels can? Two, this crying of the Holy Baptist in his preaching implies his liberty and boldness, as well as his vehemency and earnestness in delivering of his message. The lifting up of the voice in speaking argues boldness and courage in the speaker, as, on the contrary, the depressing of the voice shows timorousness. Learn hence that the ministers of the word are to use both zeal and earnestness, and also courage and boldness of spirit in delivering the word and message of God not forbearing to reprove sin, not concealing any part of God's truth for fear of men's displeasure. Observe 3. The sum and substance of what he cried. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is, make ready yourselves, prepare your own hearts to entertain the doctrine and glad tidings of the gospel. It is a metaphorical speech, taken from the custom of loyal and dutiful subjects, who, when their prince is coming to lodge in their city, prepare and make ready the way for his coming, by removing everything that may obstruct or hinder his progress. Learn hence that men's heart, by nature, is very unfit to embrace and entertain the Lord Jesus Christ. We have naturally no fitness, no disposition, no inclination to believe in him or to submit unto him. Two, if ever we desire to entertain Christ in our hearts, we must first prepare and make fit our hearts for the receiving and embracing of him. For though the preparation of the hearts be from the Lord, yet he requires the exercise of our faculties and the use of our endeavors. He prepares our hearts by enabling us to the preparation of our own hearts. This is done by getting a sight of the evil of sin, a sense of our misery without Christ, and hungering and thirsting desire after him, a true faith in him. Christ will lodge in no heart that is not thus made ready to receive him. Verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Burkett notes, A twofold account is here given of St. John's execution of his ministry and office. First, his baptizing. Secondly, his preaching. John did baptize, that is, admit persons into the church, by washing them with water. John baptized into the name of Christ, who was to come. The apostles baptized into the name of Christ, already come. The second part of his office was preaching, where note that preaching of the word and administration of the sacraments are to go together and belong only to the ministers of the word, lawfully called. John did baptize and preach, but where and what did he preach? The place where was the wilderness, a place not much frequented, though not altogether uninhabited, a solitary, mean, and obscure place. Thither God had called him, and there he contents himself. Learn hence that the ministers of God must be content to execute their ministry where God calls them, be the place never so mean and obscure, and the people never so rude and barbarous. 
John was a preacher of great note and fame. Jerusalem, the chief city, might seem more fit for him, but God had called him to preach in the wilderness, and he would not leave it. We must not leave our place because it is mean and obscure, nor desert our people, thinking them too base to instruct. But where God has called us, we must there abide till he that called us thither remove us thence. Observe farther, as the place where the Baptist preached in the wilderness, so the doctrine which he preached, namely, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That is, the doctrine of baptism, which sealeth the remission of sins to the party baptized. Learn hence that the preaching of the doctrine of repentance is absolutely necessary and the indispensable duty of every gospel minister. John Baptist preached it. Our Savior preached it. His apostles preached it. They went out preaching everywhere that men should repent. The baptism of repentance, says the learned Lightfoot, belongs to children, though they know not what repentance means, because it engages them to repentance when they come to years to understand that engagement. For thus it was with children circumcised. They became debtors to observe that whole law, though they knew not what the law meant. Yet circumcision bound them to it when they came to the years of discretion. Verse 5. And there went out unto him all the lands of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Burkett notes, Here we have an account of the success of St. John's ministry. One, in the general concourse and resort of the people to it, all Judea and Jerusalem. That is, a great many of all degrees and ranks, of all ages and sexes. John was famed for a prophet, and a prophet was now a great rarity. Malachi was the last prophet before John, and he lived about 500 years before John. Now the excellency of his person, the earnestness of his preaching, the acceptableness of his doctrine, that the Messiah was come, and the austerity of his life and conversation, all these caused the people to flock unto him. Learn hence that it is a great encouragement to the ministers of Christ when people show themselves ready and forward to repair unto the places where the word and sacraments are dispensed to them. All Judea and Jerusalem attended upon St. John's ministry. The second fruit of St. John's ministry was that the people were ready to receive at his hand the sacrament of baptism. They were all baptized of him in Jordan. Learn hence that the ministers of Christ ought not only to preach the word, but also to dispense the sacraments to their people, even to all that desire them and are fit to be partakers of them. A third fruit of John's ministry was his hearer's profession of their true repentance by the confession of their sins. As the profession of repentance is requisite in all that are baptized, so a free and voluntary, an ingenious and impartial confession of sin is good evidence and testimony of the truth and sincerity of our repentance. Verse 6. And John was clothed with camel hair, and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Burkett notes, this verse acquaints us with the strictness and austerity of St. John's life in the wilderness, which is laid down in two things, in his mean and frugal apparel, and in his sober and temperate diet. His apparel was rough and hairy, and his girdle of leather, as Elijah, his forerunner, was clad before him. 2. 2 Kings 1.8 His diet was coarse and ordinary, locusts and wild honey, that is, such plain and ordinary food as the wilderness afforded. 
His example teaches us that the ministers of the gospel are not to affect either bravery in apparel or delicacy in diet, but both, by their habit and diet, set an example of gravity and sobriety before their people, being in these, as well as in other things, an example unto their flock. Verse 7, And preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Burkett notes, Here, one, the high opinion that the Baptist had of Christ. He is mightier than I. That is, a person of greater dignity and excellency by far than myself. Whence may be gathered that though Christ was man, he was not mere man, but more than man, even very God, equal with his Father. For John the Baptist was the greatest of them that were born of woman. Matthew 11.11 Yet, says he, Christ is mightier and greater than I. How so, but in regard to the dignity of his person, being both God and man, in two distinct natures and one person. Observe, too, the humble and low estimation that the Baptist had of himself. His shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. A proverbial speech, implying that he was unworthy to do the basest and meanest service for Christ. Oh, how well doth humility of mind and humble apprehension, a low esteem and opinion of themselves and their own gifts and abilities, become the messengers and ministers of Christ. John was a man of eminent abilities, yet of exemplary humility. He thought himself unworthy to unloose Christ's shoe or to do the meanest office for him. Verse 8. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Burkett notes, John showed the dignity of Christ's person above his own in the former verse. In this, he declares the excellency of Christ's office and the meanness of his own. I wash the body with water, but Christ cleanses the soul by the operation of his Holy Spirit. Thence learn that though the ministers of Christ do by Christ's command dispense the outward ordinance of baptism, yet it is Christ himself that by the inward work of his Spirit doth make it effectual to such as receive it. I baptize with water, but he with the Holy Ghost. Verses 9-11 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Burkett notes, see the note on Matthew 3.13. Observe here one the great condescension of Christ in seeking and submitting to the baptism of John. Christ, though he was John's Lord and Master, yea, Lord of heaven and earth, yet cometh to hear John preach and will be baptized of his messenger. Thence learn that the greatest persons should neither think themselves too great nor too good to come unto the ministers of God to hear the word from their mouth or to receive the sacrament at their hand. Christ, the Son of God, was content to be baptized of John, a mean person in comparison of himself. How dare, then, the greatest upon earth despise the ministry of man being appointed by God? Observe, too, the solemn investing of Christ with the office of mediator by a threefold miracle, namely, the opening of the heavens, the descent of the Holy Ghost, and God the Father's voice or testimony concerning his Son. The heavens were opened, 
to show that heaven, which was closed and shut against us for our sins, is now opened to us by Christ's undertaking for us. As Christ opened heaven by his meritorious passion, so he keeps it open by his prevailing intercession. Next, the Holy Ghost descends like a dove upon our Savior. Here we have a proof and evidence of the Blessed Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son comes out of the water, and the Holy Ghost descends in the likeness of a dove. But why did the Holy Ghost now descend upon Christ? First, for the designation of his person, to show that he was the person set apart for his word and office of a mediator. Secondly, for the sanctification of his person, for the performance of that office. This was Christ's unction, the day on which he was anointed above his fellows to be the king, priest, and prophet of his church. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me, etc. Observe 3. The voice of God the Father pronounced. 1. The nearness of Christ's relation to himself. This is my Son. 2. The endearedness of his person. This is my beloved Son. 3. The fruit and benefit of his near and dear relation unto us, in whom I am well pleased. Hence learn that there is no possibility for a person to please God out of Christ. Neither our persons nor our performances can find acceptance but through him and for his sake. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the ground and cause of all that love which God the Father showeth to the sons of men. In Christ, God is well pleased with us as a reconciled Father. Out of him, a consuming fire. <laughs>